Welcome back for another episode of the Quantum Podcast. Today I sit down with Patrick Chester. Patrick is a former gambling addict and has turned his life around to now help those who are going through the problems which he went through during his past. Patrick's addiction went on for over 15 years, stealing from those around him and stealing money through his business. He eventually ended up in prison as a result of it all catching up with him. It's a very interesting story with some great insights involved with it. So I hope you enjoy this one. And Patrick, thanks for your time. I really appreciate you opening up the way you did. So remember to follow Patrick wherever you can and also like, subscribe and share the podcast with anyone who may be interested. Thank you. Tell me about yourself. Tell me about where you started, how this journey started for you. Yeah, good question. So, you know, really, I was um, through high school and college, actually, mainly college, you know, so when I was 18, 19, 20 years old, I started playing cards and gambling with friends as just, you know, just a casual thing, just a hobby. I didn't see any problem with it. I didn't um, recognize the dangers associated with it. And so, you know, that's kind of where it began for me, which is which is consistent with most gamblers. It starts in the early, you know, teens and early 20s. And so, um, but what began to happen was, you know, when I got out of college and into my 20s and early 30s, I started gambling on um, football games, you know, American football. I was um, primarily a sports better. I wasn't necessarily a casino better, a casino gambler. And so what began to happen was I started placing wagers on um, college football games and then NFL football games. And that kind of started, like I say, right around my mid-20s and into my early 30s. And what um, kind of the starting point for me, I look back on it now, was right around 2001. You know, I'll never forget it. I won $900. Um betting on a few college football games one day. And that was at the time, I didn't have a lot of money. You know, I wasn't very, I didn't have any, I didn't have, I wasn't married, didn't have any kids. And winning $900 was a rush, right? So um, that kind of stuck with me and triggered something in my brain back then where I'm like, wow, I can actually make money doing this. And so that's, you know, looking back on it now, right around that period of time, 2001, when I would have been around 20, shoot, 28, 27, 28 years old is kind of where it really began. Yeah, because I remember that. So in the UK, it's 18, you can start gambling. Because obviously in the US, it's different, isn't it? There's a lot of states that actually you can't sports bet and stuff. But you okay, can... yeah, that's that's good, interesting because when I started betting on on sports, we didn't have state sponsored sports betting. We had one state. Um, really um, in the country that was Nevada where Las Vegas is right Las Vegas you can you can bet legally on sports in Nevada back then when I started gambling um, but you couldn't any in any other state in the country legally you know so I was betting uh, primarily through bookies you know I had people in in Nevada where I would send them money and they would place bets for me oh, interesting. and also and also too I, I was betting um, through offshore accounts yeah. You know, sending money to places like Costa Rica and Puerto Rico and things like that and gambling that way. But now I think it's up to 32 states um, in the U.S. Yeah. where we actually have legalized sports betting. So it's it's much different, much more accessible now. Yeah. So in the U.K., obviously, it's from 18 years of age that you can get into it. And I remember 
So the day of my birthday, I signed up for a couple gambling sites and I won. So I put placed a pound bet and I think I won. It was over 200 pound on that first one. And I remember the, that feeling of like, oh my God, I just off like a pound of me 200. How, how's that happen? Like, and then I've, for a few weeks, I was just placing bets on like football leagues that were in like Estonia. And then I, a, a few weeks later, I was like, why, why am I doing it? So I stopped for a while because of that thing, because you, you, it entices you to want to bet on these stupid things that you would never understand or never know. That's interesting. Yeah. You know, for me and, and many, many people that struggle with, with gambling and have uh, big time gambling addictions, it's, there's no, as I, as I describe it, right. There's no shut off valve for us, right? You know, many people can gamble. It's like alcohol or drugs. You know, um, I can drink, but I know when to stop. Um, a lot of people can gamble and they know when to stop, but with any addiction, um, there are some of us when it comes to gambling that we just, there's no, there's no shut off valve there. We want to keep going and keep chasing our bets, right? Keep chasing one bad bet after another. And I, I did the same thing. You know, I started betting on cricket matches um that i couldn't even watch right because they're going on in the middle of the night and and mm. you know european soccer um well football over there i guess you know but you know what i mean and so i'm betting on these things that are completely out of my scope and i have no knowledge or nothing but i'm just i'm i'm consumed by it and that's that's kind of what happens yeah the it's the consumption but you don't realize it so like at what point was it for you that you realized that this was becoming an all-consuming habit right and so that that point came in i would i would say right around kind of 2003 2004 right in that time time frame um i wasn't married yet didn't have a family yet i was living with roommates and I started instead of paying my bills, instead of paying my share of the rent every month, I was using that money to gamble with. And then when rent, you know, when the end of the month came or the first of the month, it was time to, for me to pay my share of the rent. I would have to go to my roommates and say, sorry, guys, I don't have the money. And I'd make up some, some, you know, ridiculous excuse as to why I didn't have the money. But the, the truth of the matter was I was gambling with it, you know, and in my mind, it was then that I realized, you know what? there's an issue here and it's time to do something about it. But I didn't, I didn't do anything about it because I convinced myself that I could get myself out of the hole, the financial hole that I was creating by gambling more. But it was around that period of time, you know, 2003 to 2004, right in there where I, you know, in the back of my mind, I started to realize that there's an issue here. Yeah. Cause it's that thing of, because you, won $900 once in your head it, that because of that dopamine hit from that point in time in your head you still believe that it's possible to win the $900 again but obviously it's completely different because it's different games different like time like so what I tend to find with people is when they do something for the first time so say maybe they don't pay the rent for the first time it then snowballs and snowballs because they think oh actually just get away with it and you know you tell a lie here it becomes a lie there a lie elsewhere so did it just become easier for you to not pay 
rent and just lie to roommates and just be like, I don't have the money because of X, Y, or Z. That is really well, um, well laid out and well said right there, because that's, that's exactly what happens, right? You, you, you go down that road once and as a gambler, you, um, tell a lie once it becomes easier to do it a second time, a third time, a fourth time. And then it becomes just a matter of, um, it just becomes commonplace. That's what we do because we've done it before. We'll do it again. You know, and I'll give you an example, you know, right around that same period of time, we were just talking about 2002, 2003. Um, I was actually working for a friend of mine. He owned his own company. I was working for him and he was out of town and left his checks. He left, um, you know, left his checks for us to write checks if we needed to, to buy material or equipment or whatever for the business. And, I started writing checks to myself because I was, I needed money to gamble with. And I did it once. And then I did it twice. And I remember the first time I did it, I thought, man, this is really, you're going down a slippery slope right now. But I did it once and I got away with it. The second time was easier. The third time was even easier than that. And so it becomes this pattern and the cycle that we get into where we can rationalize just about everything we do. We can lie to just about anybody we come across because we've done it once. We can do it again. Um, and there was nobody that was, they couldn't figure out what was going on with me. My friends and family, they didn't know what was, they just knew there were issues, but they couldn't pinpoint it. And so nobody could really call me out or hold me accountable for it because they really didn't know what was going on. But yeah, it's, it's kind of a, a, a cycle that we get into that is really frightening. Yeah. The, so obviously you managed to hide it for quite a while from your family, but so when you met your wife or say you were with your wife at that point and then you moved in together, how are you still hiding that from her? Because obviously when you move in with someone in a relationship, you need to tell each other this is you need to know where each other are, whether they're stable or they're not. So how did you manage to deal with that side of it? Right. So my wife and I got married in 2006 and we didn't move in. We moved in prior to that, I think in 2005 and you know, really our finances were separate at the time. And then we got married and, and right, exactly. When you're married, you're no longer, I mean, your, your finances are one, you're a team, right? Well, my wife trusted me to, she trusted me to pay the bills. She trusted me to pay the mortgage payments and the rest of the bills and just trusted me to do it. You know, and at the time we still had separate bank accounts. So she, you know, it was hard for her to really see what was going on. She just took me at my word, you know, and many gamblers will tell you many, many compulsive gamblers will tell you that, um, we become very good at, at, at hiding the truth from people and spinning the truth and confusing people. In fact, sometimes I think the way I look at it, the spouse or the, the, the family member that's closest to you, sometimes it's harder for them to pick up on it because they want to believe you, whatever you're telling them. You know, and we become professional liars, you know, which is, um, it's, 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 it's a hard thing to say, but it's the truth. As gambling addicts, we become professional liars and we can convince just about anybody of anything. And so, um, that's what went on for the early part of my marriage as we can get into later on, you know, it was discovered, but you know, um, my wife knew there were problems. She just couldn't pinpoint exactly what, what yeah. was the root of it. 
So did anyone come close to finding out that it was a problem in that time? You know, I don't, a lot of people, again, friends and family members knew there were issues because there were, there were financial inconsistencies and all kinds of weird things were happening, but nobody really knew it was gambling. You know, I think, I think they probably just thought I was, I was really bad at managing my money, you know, but I would tell people stories and it wouldn't make sense. And then this friend would talk to this friend and I, I had told them two completely opposite stories and they're like, this doesn't add up. So people would say things to me and family members would make comments, but they couldn't really, it wasn't until later on, you know, again, which we can get into around 2014, 2015, where um, friends and family members actually discovered what was going on. So it was around 11 years then that this went on without no, anyone really, you know, without it coming out to everyone. <laughs> yeah yeah which is which is shocking you know but it's 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 not that uncommon again with gambling addicts but mine went on for i was able to keep mine hidden for for longer than most but it's it's a similar pattern you know and it's it's you don't see you know the way i look at it is you can look at a drug addict and you can look at an alcoholic and you can see the physical effects on them right you can see it yeah. on them with a gambling addict you don't see that you know, um, it's more the mental, the mental side of it with the gambling addict where mentally we're, we're a mess, but physically it's really, you don't see that. Okay. And so yeah. it's, you know, I refer to it as kind of the, the silent addiction because, um, it's there and it's bubbling underneath the surface, but you just can't recognize what's going on. Yeah. It's quite, it's quite intense because you are obviously feeling the effects of it. Like physically you're pro and mentally you're probably feeling the effects of it. You know, when you say you lose a hundred dollars here, 200 there, and then you're like, Oh fuck, I can't pay the rent again. How much, what was like the, the most you were spending at the time on a single bet? So if I take you through, um, as we get into around 2009, which was the year our first son was born, um, 2009, 2010, I began working for myself as a contractor, as a general mm -hmm. contractor. Um, and so I had access to, to large amounts of money. People, clients would, um, for example, I would sit down with a client, we would sign a contract for a project and they would hand over a deposit check for 20, 30, $40,000 because they trusted me. Well, what I was, what I would do with that money is because I had become so consumed with gambling, I would take half of it or more. And gamble with it. So around 2009, 2010, I started making bets that were um, 10, 15, 20 thousand dollar bets. Wow! You know, on a single game, right? And so, what started out as you know 100 dollar bets back in the early 2000s, uh, by 2010 is now up to you know 15, 20, 25 thousand dollars a bet. Yeah. See, even to this day, I've never bet more than 10 pound on a single single bet because i know for a fact if i was to bet 15 i think 15 is okay if it's about 20 i think 20 is okay like i because with me losing 10 pound i'm like fuck, like 10 pounds gone that's like and i can't even imagine 15 10 15 thousand dollars where that's meant for you know a job like it's literally a job on the line based on whether this bet comes in or not so the first time you 
lost one of those bets where you'd used the client's money? How did it make you feel? I was terrified. You know, it, it, it trans what, what had started out as fun and then um, progressed to, to something that was stressful. And like we talked about earlier, I recognized there was an issue. I didn't address it. We're now at a point where, um, you know, when I took that first deposit check and, and started betting, I think it was a twelve or $13,000 bet um, and lost it. Uh, I start. I entered into this this world of, of of darkness, okay, and fear, and paranoia, because now I'm I'm terrified. You know, I, I I've got to I've got to this this client trusting me to do their job, and now I, I've lost their money, and I can't even I can't even get materials on the job site to to do that because I don't have the money. And so then I go to another client, right, and accept a deposit from them and my thinking and my delusional um, brain, I'm thinking, well, I'm going to take $15,000 from this client, bet that on a game and I'm going to win, right? The, the, the mentality of a gambling addict is never, we're going to lose. It's always that we're going to win. And so I'm thinking, well, if I just win that, I can win the money back that I used from the other client, get that job going. So you can kind of see the, the, the path. Right. And so, yeah. Um, I would occasionally win a bet, but the 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 um, the pattern was to lose more than I won, and so over time, I just I I I, I was living in a world of darkness and fear, basically. So it is so scary to think like you know you've lost one client's money and it's not a little amount of money, and then maybe you use the seconds to try and win that back, and you lose that as well becomes this deeper and deeper hole that you just like how do you even get out of it but so when did it go from you know that where you lost the first client's money to them when clients were finding out great question it was you know i think right around 2011 2012 at this point i have 10 to 15 clients that I owe money to anywhere from 3000 to, to 40,000. Okay. Wow. And so what began to happen then was, you know, and I would, my, 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 my MO um, with all of them was to, to, to delay and, and, and come up with excuses. Hey, I'll get back on the job in a month. I've just got a health issue or there's a uh, material issue. I can't get this into, you know, well, you, you tell that story to, to, to enough people and sooner or later they start to figure it out and in the internet age they started to connect with each other because what would happen is they would file online online complaints about me and then somebody would see that and they would say whoa that same thing happened to me and somehow those people and then those people would connect eventually there were enough of them that they started to go to the state and, and file complaints with the state um and then the prosecutors would get involved and law enforcement would get involved. And, you know, that was, again, that was around 2012 when that started to happen. That's so, so intense. So what, at what point did the lawsuit come to fruition then? How long after was that? Yeah. So it wasn't, well, there were lawsuits, um, which were on the civil side. Right. But, what happened in 2013 was I was I was um, charged with two counts of first degree theft, 
okay, two of my clients had taken this far enough with the state, had enough evidence to present to the state. The state then turns it over to law enforcement. Actually, you know, the law enforcement turns it over to the prosecutors and they have enough evidence and then they charge me. In 2013, they charged me, um, again, with two counts of theft. And so it's at that point where I, I am no longer allowed to work as a contractor in the state of Washington where I live. You know, there, my, my license had been um, revoked. You know, um, my reputation was in the gutter. There was no way I could, I, could, I could work anymore. And so I'm now at a point where I'm just, it just becomes this game of hustle to me. Um, I no longer have the, the resources and avenues to get money from clients. I'm now hustling from friends or family members and trying to get money that way. Yeah. It, so did your wife find out at that point or was it later? It was a little bit later. We're getting, we're kind of getting there. This was around 2013, you know. Um, and then in 2014, I'll tell you the, 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 the low point for me, you know, rock bottom as, as, as some of us call it, you know, was in 2014 where I was, um, I was desperate. I was out of money out of resources, had lost many friends um, through my behaviors and my choices and hadn't owned up to any of this to anybody. I hadn't told anybody about it. I was keeping it a secret. And I took $9.50 from my five-year-old son's piggy bank in November of 2014. And I remember sitting in the car later that afternoon, staring out the window and contemplating suicide, thinking, there's no way I can keep, there's no way I can go on anymore. My wife and my son will be better off without me. I can't continue wow. this, you know, and it was, it was so, you know, the lowest point in my life was, was that day. Um, and it was $9 and 50 cents. It wasn't the 20,000 or 30,000 or 40,000 that I took from a client and lost. It was the $9 and 50 cents that I took from my five-year-old son, you know? And so that was, uh, like I said, that was November of 2014. And then as we can get into here shortly thereafter is when my wife would find out um, a few months later. How, how did you manage to go nearly two years from being convicted of you know, theft to your wife finding out in 2015? Yeah, so the way that works is I was actually charged um, in 2013 with those with those. Um, crimes i was charged with them but over here the legal process takes a while to play out okay so once you're charged with something um it could be a year to two year one to two years before you're actually finally convicted okay um it just it's just it's just the process it's just it just takes a long time and so what happened was actually in, in december of 2014 um my attorney presented me with a um an offer from the state to, to, to plead guilty to these, these charges. And then I would ultimately be sent sentenced three months later in 2015. So, um, it's an interesting thing because my wife had no idea all of this was going on behind the scenes. I never told her that I had been charged with these crimes. I was hiding the paperwork, you know, things would come in the mail. I would hide that from her. So she never saw that. Um, so she did not know about that at that time. Wow. So what were you telling her was going on when you lost your job? You know, what were you do? How, what did she think you were doing for work? She thought I was still working for myself. I told her I was still um, working as a contractor, but even though I wasn't. Um, so each day I would get up and put on my work boots and put on my, my, my clothes and go out as if I'm going off to work. 
well, what I was doing was I was going out and I was just hustling money from whoever I knew, right. Or trying to hustle money. Um, you know, in fact, I, I rented some big, heavy construction equipment in 2014 from, from somebody I had known and who still trusted me. One of the last people that still trusted me at that point, uh, the equipment was worth over a hundred thousand dollars. I rented it from, from this, this guy and I ended up selling it the next day for around $20,000. So things like that, you know, so I would have money a little bit here and there to, to kind of show my wife, Hey, here's some money for, for this or that. So it was, there was always kind of a, I was always able to come up with a little bit of money here and there and, and, and you know, give it to my wife or pay something. So she kind of thought that everything was still working, <laughs> Wow! but, um, it just became a game of hustle really. Yeah. So 4th of February, 2015, your wife finds out how, how does she find out and what's her reaction? Right. And so we had just gotten back from, um, a trip and while we were out of town her father found out i had sent i had sent kind of a, a a cryptic email to a family member just prior to us leaving on that trip about some gambling debts i had and i just said hey i need to get this paid off and, and that family family member turned that over to my father-in-law while we were out of town so we come back and the very next day after we got back um i'll never forget it my wife um, calls me the mor that morning as I'm driving around hustling from people. Um, and she says, my dad just called me and he asked me to come over and he sounded kind of weird. Do you know what's going on? And I said, no, <laughs> I hung up the phone with my wife and I, I kind of suspected something was happening. I didn't know what. And so I tried calling my wife several times that day. Couldn't get a hold of her, which was really odd. I knew something. So I knew something was going on over the course of that day. I would finally get a call from my father-in-law later that afternoon. And he said, he said, uh, we know what's going on. So they had done some research. He had done some research, figured out that I had a gambling problem, had no idea of the scope or the magnitude at that time, but he knew there was a problem. And so it was that day that I got a call from him and he said, you're not welcome. Um, no, my wife said, you're not welcome back at the house right now. And I wasn't welcome at my father, my in-law's house. So I had to get a hotel that night. And the very next day, they had arranged for an intervention for me to, to sit down with my family and um, a professional and address it. So how did that go? So that was that was strange. You know, I was I, I my father in law actually picked me up that morning and I didn't really know what we were doing. Um, at that point, I knew that they knew. Right. They told me they knew I had a gambling problem. He picked me up and we went to some strange place, some strange building I had never been to. We walked through some down some dark hallways and into a room. And I walk into this room and boom, my family, all my family's sitting there. And then there's a stranger who I'd never met before, this gal, this lady sitting there. I'm like, whoa, what are we doing? And then it dawned on me what we were actually doing. It was an intervention, you know, the ones you see on TV where the drug addict or the alcoholic or whatever is brought into a room by their family to try and fix or help them um, turn their life around. And that's what that was. And so I sat in that room and I listened to my family members um, talk about the pain and the anger that they had and how upset they were. And, but also too, how much they wanted me to go off and get help. And they had, 
um, set it up to where I was, um, if I accepted Minnesota halfway across the country and checked into a treatment center. So they still didn't know at this point that you were going to, you were going to go to prison essentially. So at this point they have no idea um, of any of that. What would happen over the course of the next 30 days um, while I was in um, intense treatment halfway across the country, my wife and her family would, would, would uncover just about everything, right? They would find out all of the things I had done. Um, they would find out about the, 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 the criminal aspect of this. And they would also find out that I had, <clears throat> I had this um, sentencing coming up literally six weeks after I had gone off to treatment, I had to go in for my sentencing and it was that day I was going to be um, sent off to jail. They, they would find out all of this stuff while I was in treatment. Wow. So when you're in treatment, do you have contact with any of them? I was allowed to call my wife once every three days, you know, and those were, those were, those were really difficult phone calls because all I wanted at that point was, was to know that I had a chance to, to save my marriage. Um, and my wife was great because she would, she would give me that hope in those phone calls. But at the same time, I was only able to call once every three days. And over the course of those three days, I knew that she was uncovering more and more and more and more of what had happened over the last nine years of our marriage. Um, and so she would throw that at me in these phone calls and, and, and say, well, I guess what I just found out, I, I found out you just um, two years ago, you took $28,000 from my retirement account without telling me things like that. She would discover while I'm in treatment and then um, present to me over the phone, you know, in these phone calls. And those, those were really difficult times, but um, yeah, that's how it went. You know, once every three days I was able to call home. Did the treatment help at all? It did help. It, it, it really did. Because what it did was, you know, I walked into that place thinking, well, I'm just a bad person who can't stop gambling and can't stop lying and can't stop stealing. Um, nobody's doing this. Nobody, no good person does this. Right. So I walked into that place thinking that. But what I what I came to learn through the professionals and the staff there was you're not necessarily a bad person. You're a sick person making bad choices. Okay. And so once I was able to, to, to realize that and understand the process in the brain um, that goes on with a gambling addict, you know, I was able to, to, to settle down a little bit and, and regain a little bit of hope, you know, and, and, and understand what this addiction actually is. And, you know, when I left there, they give you the tools, the mental tools to, to, to handle certain um, triggers and certain urges to gamble that, um, you may come across as a gambling addict. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't be here without that. And, that, and that's a, that's that was basically the point, the turning point for me in my life. What's an example of a way someone can protect themselves from the urge to gamble once they've, you know, they've stopped gambling as an addict? Right. It's a really difficult thing, you know, so um, we as gambling addicts, we, we develop these behaviors, these ingrained behaviors, because we've been living that way for so long. And it's just almost by default, um, we do these things. And really, it's it's surrounding yourself with people like you, 
you know, that's one thing I, I did immediately after I left treatment was um, I started going to, to meetings and, and groups of people that were dealing with the same thing I was dealing with, because it's really hard for people on the outside that don't get it to, to relate to you. So I had to talk to people that could relate to me and I could relate to because they're living the same nightmare. Okay. And so that was the first thing I had to do was surround myself with people like me to stay grounded and talk through some of those triggers and some of those urges, you know, and then it's a, it's a lifestyle change too. You know, it's not um, putting yourself in the same environment. Like I had to, I had to change everything about the way I lived. I couldn't, um, my whole thing was sports betting, but I couldn't go to games right away because that was a trigger for me. You know, I, um, that took a long time to be able to actually sit through a, a football game and just watch it for the sake of watching it instead of gambling on it. Right. And so it's, a lot of things, but it starts with, um, you know, GA meetings, just like an alcoholic goes to AA meetings or whatever. It's, it's, it's being around the people that care about you and understand you. Yeah. I think 100% that is, I think being around people who understand it is probably more important than being, you know, cause if you're around loved ones at that time, they can be helpful in some ways, but also really scrutinize you in a way that can probably send you back down that path if that's all you're around whereas if you're around people who understand the problems with it the emotions of it then i feel like that is going to be more helpful than just being around loved ones if that makes sense yeah it makes perfect sense you know it's again people and i and i, I include myself in this you know I used to look at people, you can look at it like a gambling addict and say, well, why don't you just stop? I didn't recognize it as an addiction, really, like you do with alcohol or drugs. You know, a lot of people look at gambling and say, well, why don't you just stop? You know, and so people on the periphery, you know, family members and stuff like that that don't really get it, it's hard for them to 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 get inside the mind of a, a gambling addict, you know, and relate. Yeah. And so that's just it. You're right. I mean, it's, it's just being around, surrounding yourself with people that are struggling with the same thing and, and actually get it. Yeah. So you come out of treatment and you get, you, so you go, you end up going to prison. So how long did you have between treatment and going to prison? Three weeks. So I, I, I came home on March 7th of 2015 and on the, on March, uh, March 27th. So 20 days later, three weeks later, I went in for my sentencing and, um, not really knowing what was going to happen, when, what, what the judge was going to um, impose, right? I mean, I went in there thinking, well, I just got out of treatment, you know, um, maybe the judge will look favorably upon that, you know, and, and spare me the, the, the sentence and not send me, send me away, but she was having none of it. So it was, um, it was four months, you know, which, which could have been much longer, but I was, I was fortunate um, to get four months and, and, and not more than that, but that's what it was. So what was the first day in prison like? Awful, terrible. It was, um, you know, it was, it was um, maybe the worst experience of my life. You, you, you're, you're put in handcuffs, you know, you walk down a hallway, you're put in a dark room and, um, they take photos of you and you're treated like um, you're treated like crap and 
you know, you're thrown into a big tank with, with, with 19 other, 19 other guys who really don't care about being in there because they're so used to being in there. And here I am, I had never been in that place before. And you're surrounded by people that don't care. There's fights every day. Um, the first night I remember I, there were probably three or four fights in this big tank I was in, you know, this big room with bunks in it. It's disgusting. Right. And it's just, um, I remember staring at the walls and just thinking to myself, I was terrified. Just thinking, what have I done? What, what in the world have I done? You know? And so that's, um, that's what it was. That's what it was like that first day. The time throughout jail, did it get any better or was it just constantly, were you always like in fear of getting in a fight, something happening all that? Yeah. You know, after about three or four days, I, I, I just, I made this, I made the decision to just stick to myself. I wasn't going to get involved with anybody's nonsense or engage in any conversations with anybody that I didn't, I mean, I stayed to myself, but there was, I'll tell you, there was, um, it wasn't all bad. Right. I mean, there, there was a guy next to me, he was in the bunk next to me. And I remember talking to him every night. We would sit and talk and drink cold coffee at the end of the night. And he was a heroin addict. And, um, we had really good conversations about, he had two kids. I had one kid. Uh, he had been living on the streets for two years with his wife and they had lost their kids and he wanted to get clean and he wanted to get his kids back. And so through those conversations, we were able to develop this bond. And so um, that made me feel good about, you know, he left there a little bit before me and he, he told me how much of a difference it made in his outlook on things just to talk to me. And so that gave me a little bit of hope, right. That I can actually um, help others at the same time as I was trying to help myself. So there was, there was, um, I, I, I can take some positive out of that time, you know, and, and I would eventually leave there in June of that same year, you know, and I remember walking out of there that day and it was, it was a feeling unlike anything I'd, I'd experienced in a long time. It was like a, this sense of freedom that I had, you know, and it was freedom from addiction, right? I finally felt free from that addiction. And so I, I think looking back on it now, as, as, as rough as that was, as, as dark as those days were in that place, um, I think I needed that time to, to kind of reevaluate and assess where I was in my life and where, you know, what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. Yeah. Was there a point throughout your time in prison where you thought you would leave and your family would not be there to greet you outside? Yes, there were many moments and really all I wanted, um, if I was able to have a wife and, and son to go back to, that's all I wanted. If I had that, that gave me the hope to, 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 to go on with my life. Uh, but I had this fear. Yeah. I had this fear in the back of my mind that I was going to walk out of that and have nothing, have nobody left in my life, which would have been, I don't know that I could have, um, come back if I had walked out of there and my wife, because a lot of people had left me, right. Many of my friends were gone forever. Um, many family members were gone forever. And if I had walked out of there and, and didn't have a marriage to go back to, um, which I didn't at, at, at the beginning, but that took some time. But my wife told me there was a chance that we could, we could put that back together. And that's what kept me going. So when you were in prison, what would you, what were you doing on a daily basis? Were you allowed to work? Was the, you know, trades you could learn? What were you doing? So over here, uh, you know, in the, in the U S there's, 
there aren't any programs set up in, 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 in the system for gambling addicts, gambling addiction. There are no meetings that you can go to on a daily basis or there's just nothing set up, you know? So I was able to, to, to work um, in the morning and the afternoon where I would go serve uh, meals to other inmates on other floors, you know? Um, and that, that, that's always stuck with me. Um, I would go up, for example, I would go serve breakfast on the 11th floor. I was on the eighth floor. I'd go up to the 11th floor and I'm serving breakfast to rapists and murderers and um, handing them meals through the little slot in the door. I remember I, and something stuck with me. I remember looking at these guys thinking, what in the world have I done to, to get into this place? And, and, you know, and, yeah. but the reason I did that was because it just kind of kept my mind going a little bit. I was able to do something to, to break up the monotony of the day. But the rest of the day I was just sitting in my, in my um, tank with these guys on the, on the, you know, 19 other guys on these bunks and many of which are gambling on a daily basis. Um, and I would just read books and stare at the walls. I can't imagine the feeling that feeling that you just described, like what have I done to be in the same four walls as, you know, a rapist and a murderer? Because I'd like, by the way, you were describing it, you were in like a low security prison, you know, with the bunks, there's like 20 people in a room. But to have, to know that like a couple of floors up, maybe there's these horrible, like scum of the earth humans. Like, I can't, I just can't imagine that gut-wrenching feeling that it probably was that you had to go and serve them food and deal with them it's it's hard to describe i'm going to tell you a quick story um it was towards the end of my stay in there and i, and I was serving dinner to one of the um one of the inmates on the 11th floor and this guy had killed seven people um this guy had, and I'm just going to tell this story because this is what stuck with me. This guy and his girlfriend had killed seven people, a family of seven. They shot little kids in the head. And I'll never forget it. He had his sentencing that day, and I watched it on TV in my tank with all the other guys in my bunk room. We watched his, his sentencing was replayed on the news. And he was either going to be sentenced to death or life in prison. And he was sentenced to life in prison. He didn't get the death penalty. So that very night, as I'm serving him dinner, I'll never forget how happy he was. I'm serving him dinner, and he had a smile on his face. He was grinning ear to ear, and he asked me if I could get him a couple magazines because he was just going to chill out and read some magazines that night. And I remember thinking to myself, again, I'm in a place, I'm in a building with people like this. And it just, it just stuck with me and I'll never forget that interaction I had with that guy. Um, and it's just, it's moments like that, that, that made me realize that this wasn't a place where I belonged. You know, I had gone down a bad road yeah. and made some bad choices, but this wasn't for me. And, um, but those are kind of the, the you know, those are the people you come across in, in, in places like that. Yeah, that's, that's awful. So they're isolated, they're on their own. No one, because obviously, if they're, if you know, if someone has killed children, if he's in, uh, with a group of people, he's probably going to be dead. Right. That's right. He's in a single cell. He's in a single cell. You know, and 
they're not allowed out of their cell more than I think it's one hour a day, you know, um, not with, and they don't interact with any other inmates because like you said, I mean, some of those people will, you know, they know that they're going to be incarcerated for the rest of their life. So what do they care? They can take somebody out if they don't like them, you know? And so, whereas, yeah, I was in a, in a, like I said, a tank is what it's called where you're in with 19 other guys in a big bunk room, basically. After prison, you, when you get out and you go home to your wife, how did, what, what were the first steps to rebuilding that relationship, that trust that you lost over the course of nine years? Right. And that's it. You just touched on it. It's, it's, it's trust. <clears throat> oh, excuse me. Um, and when you break that bond of trust, that's really difficult to get that back. You know, you know, all the money, the money was one thing, but it's the, the trust once that's broken. It's a long road. And so really, I just went back to work and immersed myself in my recovery and meetings. And my entire day was was very regimented. I would go to work early in the morning. I'd work 10 to 12 hours a day. I'd come home. I'd go to a meeting. Um, I'd read books at night. I'd go to sleep. And I'd do that over and over again. And there was really no quick fix, you know. Um, I, I did told my wife that everything was going to be transparent. Um, she knew exactly what I was doing, who I was talking to, who I was working with, everything, you know, so that's where it started was just transparency. But over time, over the first, it took really first couple of years to, to get to a point where she began to, to put her faith and trust in me again. So your son's obviously, he doesn't know about any of this that's going on, does he? That like you, because he's so young, you've been to prison, doesn't know about the gambling addiction. So what point was it that you told him and how did it feel when you did that? Right. It's a great question. So, you know, at that age, he was five um, when I went in there. Far too young to understand or grasp any any of that. You know, um, obviously he knew I was gone for, for a stretch of time there. You know, and I think uh, we just, we, 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 told him it was, I had to go away for work, I, th I think is, is what we said to him at the time, you know, but he still didn't quite understand it. Um, why he couldn't talk to me on the phone, why he couldn't FaceTime me, all these things, you know. But we really, we talked to him a couple years after that, when he was, I think, seven or eight years old, and just kind of told him a little bit about it, but he was still pretty young to, to get it. It wasn't until earlier this year, when he was 13 years old, where we actually sat him down, laid it all out for him. You know, we wanted to wait until he was he was old enough to kind of understand it. You know what I mean? And so really, we, it wasn't until earlier this year where we told him everything. Wow. So how did how did he feel when he was told that obviously his dad had been to prison and spent, is it a million dollars on the gambling addiction? Yeah. Yeah, it was. It was over 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 a million dollars, and um, he was he was upset about it. I mean, he he it scared him a little bit. You know, he cried. It was um, it was a hard conversation to have. You know, but it was it was necessary. And he's you know he's slowly but surely becoming more comfortable with it and asking questions. And we're very open about it. Like, if you ever have any questions, don't hesitate to ask. You know, um, trying to to bring the positive out of this because there are so many positives now that have come from this, you know, Yeah. And, and, and trying to convey to him and help him understand what addiction does to people. It doesn't make them bad people. 
um, but there are consequences to choices that we make in life, you know, and so it's, there are a lot of learning, um, learning elements and teaching elements to this. And that's kind of how we're approaching it. So as you left prison um, and you were looking for work, how hard was it to find a job and get back on your feet? Yeah, and that was terrifying because, you know, I, in my mind, I'm, I'm walking out of that place thinking, how in the world am I ever going to get a, a, a good enough job to pay me the kind of money I need to make to pay off all this debt and get my life back in, in order? Am I ever going to be able to do that? Um, so I immediately was able to get a job, but it was a job, you know, um, there's a landscaping job where I'm out there digging trenches and building walls. I mean, I, I can't, you know, and I'm thinking, wow, I can't do this for the rest of my life, you know? So, you know, I was able to work right away, which was great. Um, <clears throat> but I also too realized that that wasn't something I was going to be, that wasn't sustainable. You know, um, I would need to find something else and, and slowly, but surely I've been able to, to um, get into different industries and different areas of work. Um, in fact, we can touch on it a bit. I mean, actually now I'm at a, at a point where I'm traveling the country and speaking with college student athletes about the dangers of, of, of gambling and that sort of thing. Yeah. So you did your TEDx talk, didn't you, in Spokane? It was, was it four or five months ago? I did. That was back in October. So yeah, it was about, um, about four months ago. So where, where did that come about? How did you get asked to be involved in that event? So I'd come across, um, I'd come across somebody who said, who told me they thought, um, I should, I should do one of those. And it's, it's, you don't just go and do one of those. He thought, you know, you actually have to apply to that particular event. They call you in for a, an audition you know, they get hundreds of applications, right? And so it's, they sort through it and, and, and pick out a handful that they would like to audition. And they brought me in and, and chose me to be one of the 10 speakers. But I think too, what, what kind of stood out about my talk and my idea was, was that this was kind of new, right? And that's the whole idea with the TEDx talk is uh, bring something new to the table that society or we're not talking about you know, um, that most people don't know about. And so that's what, what I did. And, you know, um, I, you know, like I say, yeah, that was back in October and it, it, it's, it meant a lot to me because I, I'm trying to get the word out there that, and, and, and raise awareness to what this actually is because a lot of people just don't understand it. Yeah. So there was that the sort of catalyst for doing more of these speaking events. Right. It kind of happened simultaneously with um, some other people I had met over the last year. And I'm now um, working for a company that's based out of the UK called Epic Risk Management. And they are a group of people um, that all have sports backgrounds and all have a lived experience like myself where, so we go and we speak with student athletes at different colleges and we talk to them about the dangers of gambling, like I said before, but we're talking in a way that, that resonates with them because we've lived it, right? It's not something where we're just um, lecturing them on the, on what they should or should not do. It's, it's, this is what can happen. This is how it affects you. And um, 
I really connected with, with, with the guys and the, and the people at, at, at this company. And so they brought me on and, and I'm working with them now on um, raising awareness and prevention and that sort of thing. Have you made this into a full-time job? I have now. Yes. So, yeah. So, <laughs> so going back to the work, you know, the question about, you know, finding work and all that, it's, it's interesting that this has now become my, it's not only my passion, but it's, you know, it's also um, become my livelihood. Yeah. And this, it's amazing that you've been able to do that because I feel a lot of people who make mistakes usually end up in a rabbit hole of they can't find work. And then if they, if it's work, it's like, you know, the, the job, which you were saying you can't do forever. And they end up in this like rabbit hole of like going back and to into prison because there's no options for them. So they get into all sorts, but you've been able to create this avenue where you can now go and help other people from all over the world, which is amazing. So what's the best thing to you about being able to do this for a living now? The best thing and the, and the reason I'm, I'm so passionate about it is when you're able to make a difference with people, you know, um, after speaking to a group or an audience, to have somebody come up and say, hey, my son is struggling. What can I do? Or my, my wife or my husband has a problem. What can I do? And thanks for coming. Um, and then when you're able to, to, to share with them some, some resources and some ideas, and they come back to you, whether it's one month or one year later and say, hey, so-and-so is doing better. And thank you so much for, for, for being there that day, because otherwise we don't know if we would have um, been able to find a solution. That's what that's that's what what really drives me. And it's something that I've, I've never been this passionate about anything work related in my life. You know, um, and it all goes back to. For me, it all goes back to the guy from jail that I, that I referred to earlier, the, the heroin addict. That's kind yeah. of where it started, you know, to be able to, to spend so many years of my life taking from people um, and have such a low opinion of myself to now be at a point where I'm able to make a difference and help people is a, uh, you know, it's really, it's, it's fulfilling. And that's, yeah. uh, that's kind of, that's what drives me. So I wanted to, spend some time towards the end on because obviously now this is your job it's to help people with gambling addictions so people who are wanting to make the change and they've realized that they may or may not have realized that they've got a gambling addiction how do you take the first steps towards recovery the, the first thing is you need to talk to somebody whether that's and i this is something i never did um it was it was finally just put in my face um had I talked to somebody earlier, it never would have gotten to the point where it got with me. So the main thing is to say something to somebody, Hey, I'm struggling with this. I, I think I'm losing control and it doesn't have to be a, a family member. It doesn't have to be a close friend. Sometimes that's hard, but there's a lot of shame and a lot of guilt and a lot of embarrassment when it comes to this. Um, it can be a complete stranger, which is sometimes easier. You know, there are phone numbers to call. Um, you can call, you know, go to a GA meeting, a Gamblers Anonymous meeting and talk to people that, like we talked about earlier, that can relate. I would say that's the, the, the first step is to talk to somebody, go to a meeting, just tell somebody you're struggling because what happens then is you open the door, okay? And there are a lot of people out there that will help you. There are a lot of 
a lot of compassionate, caring people in this world that will help you. But that's the first step. And then from there, it's it's meetings, it's treatment. It's, you know, um, for me, it's, it's seeing a therapist on a regular basis that understands that gambling addiction. The more we talk about our problems and the more we open up to somebody, the, the better chance we have to, you know, to turn it around. Yeah. How can loved ones and friends support addicts through their time of addiction? That's really, uh, and that's the other aspect of this. Gambling addiction is, is hard on the addict for sure, but it's extremely hard on the family, you know, from a financial standpoint for one. But secondly, they just don't know what to do. And a lot of times they're, they're confused. They want to help, but they don't know how to help. And uh, my son is, you know, I just recently just, just spoke with a mom whose 21 year old son is, is, has a gambling problem and he keeps coming to her for money. And her first instinct is to give her son money. Right. Okay, well, here, here, take this to pay off that credit card or this. That's not that's not the right approach. The approach the approach is um, sure help them out with, with essentials like food and gas or whatever, but make them accountable. Um, you need to not enable enable that person, that family member, that friend. You need to hold them accountable and make them. You know, once they get to a point where they realize, okay, well, I'm not going to just get handouts from everybody they're going to have to come to a point where they admit there's a problem and then they can address it but that's it's it's a fine balance it's it's a hard thing for the friend of the family member to know what to do but it's and it's really difficult to to you know to be tough on that person when they're struggling but that's what that's what needs to happen yeah on the thing of you know helping out by buying food and what have you <clears throat> for someone who's an addict there is in the uk it's not necessarily for addicts but it's for it was made for students but it works for say alcoholics because so a supermarket in the uk asda they created this voucher that parents could buy for their kids who'd gone to uni which could only be spent on food could not be like this voucher was not valid for alcohol and i thought i thought about it when it when i was told about it years ago i was like actually that's really good for alcoholics because you can give them money to go and buy food, but they'll always go and buy alcohol. If you buy them a voucher, which is only for food, they literally have no other option but to buy food, which is a yeah. way of getting around it. And it's, I think it's, you have to, it, there's the effort of, but you have, you probably have to go out with them and buy it for them so that you know that they're not using the money for gambling, for alcohol, for drugs, whatever. But in the end of the day, it's to, it's helping with those little incremental steps to get them to where they want to be. That's just it, you know. That's just it. It's it's <clears throat> that's a great that's a great thing, you know. It's it's um. But like I said, it's just it's a hard thing for the family member to know what to do. Oh, their first instinct is to want to help, right? And and it's it's that's why this is such a tough addiction for for people to wrap their head around because they just don't get it. Yeah. Um, so what are some addictive tendencies that people should look out for when they may think that someone has a addiction? You know, the first one is obviously is the obvious one. It's financial inconsistencies, you know, um, lies, um, isolation, 
you know, with, with, with the gambling addict, we, we tend to isolate. We tend to, to become distant, you know, when you're, when you're having a conversation with, with somebody, a friend or a family member, and they're looking over your shoulder or they seem lost or they're not um, focused on you or what, what you're talking about. Those are all signs, you know, like we talked about earlier, you can, you can recognize usually when somebody has a drug problem or an alcohol issue, you know, but if there are financial inconsistencies, lies, um, the deception and the lies, that's a huge part of this. Okay. Um, those are things to look out for. And then also to the, like I said, the isolation and the distance, if there's, there's, you know, there tends to be a, a disconnect between the gambling addict and their friends and family members. So those are some of the main things to look out for. Mm -hmm. So what resources are there out there for addicts to use? Right. So the first one is, you know, and I want to throw this in there too, because I, I, this is real important. The suicide rate for gambling addiction is, is 12 times higher than that of any other addiction. Okay. And so there's the national, well, in the U S there's a national suicide prevention line that you can call. There's also um, 1-800-GAMBLER, I think it is. And there are also local GA meetings, local uh, Gamblers Anonymous meetings in most areas. Those are the things that, like we talked about earlier, those are ways to, to, to reach out for help. When it comes to treatment, unfortunately, there aren't nearly enough um, treatment facilities in the U.S. anyway that deal with specifically with gambling addiction. There are a handful of inpatient facilities in the country uh, fortunately, I was able to go to one of them. You know, those are those are um, some of the main resources that that the gambler can look out for. But it's it's really just goes back to what we were talking about earlier. Once you're able to talk to somebody, they can kind of point you in that direction and help you. So, one final question for you, uh, just to finish up: How would you like to be remembered? <laughs> That's a good one. A tough question. Um, I think as, you know, first and foremost, as a good father and a good husband, you know, I, I, you know, um, I wasn't during my addiction. Right. And so that family to me is number one. So a, a good father and a good husband, aside from that, somebody that went out of their way to help people, you know, um, it's really important for me to help addicts. Not necessarily doesn't necessarily need to be a gambling addict. I know that better than most, but addiction is addiction, and I want to be. I would like to be remembered as somebody that went out of their way to help people that were struggling in their addiction. So, I can't thank you enough for your time on this, and I think it's a really insightful podcast, especially for you know people who are struggling with not just gambling addiction but different addictions. Um, so where can people find your stuff or if they want to reach out to you about an, like an addiction, how can they contact you? So a couple ways, you know, um, my Twitter is a great way to, to find me and find out what I'm doing and, and, and things like that. It's at Patrick Chester nine, the number nine. Um, also to my website, which is, should be up and running now. We had to do some work to it. Um, it's patrickchester.com. And I throw this out there too from time to time and I'm not afraid to do it. Um, people can call me, you know, and my phone number is 425-492-0556. And I take calls from anybody, anytime, anywhere um, if they're struggling with any form of addiction. 
Amazing. I really appreciate that. And hopefully through this episode, we can help a few people with possible addictions that they have, or at least raise awareness of what could be going on in someone's life. So thank you so much for your time. And I appreciate you coming on. Ethan, thank you, man. I really appreciate you having me on. And, and uh, like you said, hopefully this helps some people and, and just shed some light on, on an issue that a lot of people just don't know about. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Patrick Chester. Remember, his links will be in the description below and also check out the podcast on Instagram, TikTok and all podcast platforms, including YouTube. Thank you for listening.